everybody. This is Volts for January 19th, 2022. Volts podcast, Jason Bordoff and Megan O'Sullivan on the geopolitics of clean energy. I'm your host, David Roberts. When one contemplates the thorny geopolitics of oil and gas with its century-long string of crises, conflicts, and moral compromises, it's easy to think that the transition away from fossil fuels to clean energy will usher in a saner and more peaceful world. And that may happen in the long term, once the transition is complete. But the road from here to there over the course of the next few decades is likely to be bumpy. Policymakers need to start planning for the predictable disruptions headed our way. That is the message of a recent essay in Foreign Affairs by Jason Bordoff, Director of the Center on Global Energy Policy at Columbia University, and Megan O'Sullivan, a longtime foreign policy operative and professor of international affairs at the Harvard Kennedy School. Bordoff and O'Sullivan outline a number of risks the world faces in the short to midterm as it endeavors to ramp up clean energy and ramp down fossil fuels. Investment in fossil fuels could decline faster than demand, which would perversely strengthen the position of Gulf states sitting on the cheapest oil. Production of the minerals needed to build clean energy technologies is highly concentrated, often in countries with unstable politics and poor or no labor standards, like the Democratic Republic of Congo. Processing of almost all clean energy minerals is heavily concentrated in China, giving it enormous leverage and exposing world markets to economic or political upheavals there. Trade sanctions or tariffs could slow the spread of innovations. The U.S.'s inability to get its act together could sour relations with the EU, which is moving ahead with ambitious, coordinated climate policy. And so on. Clean energy will eventually diminish the sway of fossil fuel geopolitics but the transition will create its own geopolitics, its own tensions, disputes, and choke points. I'm eager to talk to Bordoff and O'Sullivan about some of those risks and what might be done to prepare for them. So without further ado, uh, Jason Bordoff and Megan O'Sullivan, welcome to Volts. Thanks for coming. Great to be with you. Thanks for inviting us. Thank you, Dave. There's a ton to cover here. You guys have this great piece in Foreign Affairs that I want to begin by quoting. You say, talk of a smooth transition to clean energy is fanciful. There is no way that the world can avoid major upheavals as it remakes the entire energy system, which is the lifeblood of the global economy and underpins the geopolitical order. In a sense, the whole piece is addressed at kind of a naive view of what the clean energy transition is going to involve. I think a lot of people, when they think about it in terms of geopolitics, just think there's all this messy, nasty geopolitics around oil and gas and fossil fuels. And if we just subtract that, right, <laughs> then, then you have a, a world that's running smoothly and at peace. But you know, your whole point of your piece is that that naive view is wrong. So just at, at a high level, sort of describe why people have that naive view and why, and why you think it's wrong. 
Well, I'll just jump in and and and, and then let Megan weigh in as well. I think uh, I think you you described the motivation for the piece uh, very accurately. I recall sitting a few years ago at a roundtable at the Munich Security Conference talking about Nord Stream Two, a pipeline very much in the news these days as the U.S. and Russia try to see if we can prevent conflict in Europe. And there was a comment at that I remember, sort of why why are we spending so much time on this? It it won't matter soon anyway because the geopolitics of oil and gas is simply going to fade. And I think that struck me as and and I know Megan as well because we've talked a huge amount about it as uh, simplistic and the geopolitics of energy since. I don't know, at least the Arab oil embargo in the early 1970s, probably much longer, has largely been about oil and gas, whether it's the concerns about OPEC's control over oil markets or Russia's gas supply into Europe or anything else. And so it's a really hopeful vision uh, to say when we hopefully decarbonize and move away from oil and gas, those geopolitical risks will become a thing of the past. And I think we were making two points in the piece. One is that that end state of beyond oil and gas is pretty far away. So there's a multi-decade period when you kind of have the new geopolitics of clean energy layered on top of the old geopolitics of oil and gas. And even a net zero world is not zero oil and gas necessarily. Uh, But also there will be new risks that will be created by the emergence of clean energy from critical minerals to trade conflicts to uh, new zero carbon fuels like hydrogen and ammonia that might move around by ship. So a range of new issues that we want to make sure people are thinking about, because if we don't anticipate what those risks might be, our concern is that those geopolitical and national security risks, if we're not addressing them, might actually undermine our ability to move as quickly as we need to to decarbonize. And I'd, I'd simply add to that, Dave, uh, Jason has put it very well, but I think at least you know intellectually in the foreign policy and climate communities, when we first started talking about geopolitics, there was this focus on you know what does success look like, imagining a world, say it's 2050, where the global economy is fully decarbonized. And you know I was part of that effort along with some of Jason's colleagues from Columbia, you know really focused on painting that picture. And I think it's feasible, and I think Jason and I both agree that it's feasible when the world is fully decarbonized, that maybe politics and geopolitics of energy will be more copacetic. But, you know, what the piece really does and the focus of Jason and my work these days is really to say that almost feels theoretical because what matters for the short and medium term, not discounting the long term, is what is going to happen in between. And here we're going to have not the geopolitics of oil and gas gradually and incrementally giving way to the geopolitics of new energies. We're going to have them, as Jason said, layered on top of each other. And we're seeing this, you know, I think November, December was a great example of this, where you have the COP and all the enthusiasm and energy around faster decarbonization and how important it is for the world. At the same time, where you had an energy crisis unfolding in Europe, where Russia was playing the same old cards of the old geopolitics of natural gas. And that I think is going to be, and Jason and I agree on this, this is going to be the screenplay of the next couple of decades where both of these things happen simultaneously. Right. And one of the risks that you bring up is that due to kind of a social pressure in the developed world and sort of changing social mores and stuff, there's a lot of pressure to shut down production in some countries and so there's a there's a risk that production could decline before demand declines <laughs> which will have the effect of empowering those countries that are still producing so say a little bit about what that might look like in the short term well i think we're seeing it potentially in the short term right now i think there is a lot of concern that we are 
in potentially the next several years, we're going to go through a sort of super cycle of commodity prices in part because of underinvestment, not entirely because of the energy transition and social pressures. That's certainly part of it. Also the pandemic and the, how quickly you can ramp up investment and supply chains and all the rest. But look, we had the IEA tell us very clearly in their landmark net zero report that if we were on a pathway for net zero by 2050, which sadly we're not, but if we were, we would not need investment in new oil and gas supply. And those kind of broad messages, uh, along with social pressures and investment pressures and everything else, have some impact, along with the uncertainty over what is the outlook for oil demand? When is it going to peak and start to decline? And that pulls back capital, maybe raises the cost of capital. Uh, but oil demand is still going up each and every year. Natural gas demand is still going up each and every year. And if you look at the data, the last two years, we have been investing as much in oil and gas as we should be if we were on track for net zero by 2050. Mm. The problem is, if we were on track for net zero by 2050, we should be investing more than three times as much in clean energy as we are. So we are not investing enough in energy to meet demand. Uh, ideally, we would do that not by dramatically ramping up oil and gas spending, but by dramatically <laughs> ramping up clean energy spending. But you know, it's really hard to scale it that quickly, especially if the policy support is not there. And so there is a risk that underinvestment could lead to energy crunches and price spikes. And and again, we see the political response in Europe where there's an energy crisis uh, this winter. Nevertheless, uh, high gasoline prices in the US and the need for the administration to feel it has to release the SPR in response to oil prices that weren't even that high, $80 a barrel. That kind of public concern about higher energy prices risks undermining support for stronger climate policy, I fear. Well, not just passively undermining. I mean, we're seeing this today already, too, and I'm sure this will ramp up as well, which is every time there's one of these fluctuations or disruptions or events or price spikes, there's a lot of people out there who want to blame it on the clean energy transition. If I could go back and just add something to Jason's response about the real problem of underinvestment and how this could create um, some of these imbalances, your question was about empowering old producers and you know is this imbalance going to empower them? And I think the underinvestment story is the big story there, but there's also a reality or a wrinkle that doesn't get as much attention, and that has to do with you know when we look at the scenarios, including the IEA's net zero 2050. Um, scenario, all of these scenarios acknowledge that there will still be some role for oil and gas, even in a fully decarbonized global economy. And that, of course, those carbon emissions should be taken care of by carbon removal or some other technologies that still need to be developed. But that's generally part of the picture. And so the reality is that there are going to still be some oil producers, a smaller number collectively producing a smaller amount of oil in the future. But who are those producers going to be? It's likely going to be those producers that we think of as having the lowest cost production, right. having the, you know, the oil that has the lowest carbon footprint. And so, you know, those tend to be the big producers in the Gulf, Saudi Arabia, the United Arab Emirates, maybe even Iraq. And so even in a fully decarbonized world, those countries are still probably going to have some geopolitical influence because they're going to be producing a larger share of a much smaller pie. Right. And I would just say, you, you made an important point. I just don't want the, want the audience to make sure it gets captured because you're right that often yeah. people do point to dislocations, energy crises, and attribute everything to the clean energy transition. And that's not right. 
you know, was the Texas energy crisis was blamed on wind. And we, we know with post-hoc analysis, it was mostly about failed natural gas production and infrastructure. Uh, some of that's true in Europe as well. But I do think there's a broader kind of harbinger of risks that may be to come. I think a point we make in the piece is that it's hard to imagine why we think it should be smooth to take the global energy system, which is something at massive scale, and turn it on its head almost overnight, which, you know, Vaclav Smil's work and everything else tells us a quarter century to get to a net zero economy is really fast by standards of energy history. Uh, we're going to make missteps. We're going to get policy shifts. You know, we go from Obama to Trump to Biden. We're going to get certain technologies wrong. There's not a master planner, of course, as you know. So we have individual decisions by individual utilities, individual investors. We build parts of the grid and then maybe we retire parts before the system's ready to handle it. We really have to think about how to build more tools into smooth volatility because we're going to get some things wrong in this transition. And to the extent we get them wrong and that leads to price spikes or geopolitical risks, again, that's just going to undermine our climate ambition. Right. And just, I, I know I'm like one step behind, but to underscore the point that Jason just made, which is that one of our concerns is that the geopolitical impacts are not sufficiently understood and that there is the risk that these geopolitical impacts end up being the greatest risk to a successful transition. Mm. So that that's the concern. And you know, your point about people thinking that disruption, high oil prices is because of the clean energy transition, you know, is, as Jason acknowledged, you know, hasn't been very accurate thus far, but the perceptions often shape the policy. We think about how trade became such an incredibly divisive political issue here in the United States. And a lot of the job displacement was actually because of technology and Mm -hmm. automation, but that doesn't really matter. And when we're looking at transition, that's going to be dominantly driven by policy. We want to try to make sure that doesn't happen. Right. And also, well, I was going to come back to this later, but let's just pause for a moment and talk about Russia because almost the rest of the world, I can imagine the role they play in the clean energy transition and a sort of happy ending for them at the end of that story. But with Russia, it really seems like they're totally dependent on gas. They're totally dependent for their geopolitical power and influence on gas. And they're already actively involved in trying to undermine the Western democratic order. And as this becomes, as this transition proceeds, it seems like it's just going to get pretty existential for Russia. And there's a lot of potential for bad things to come out of that, for a new Cold War or for Russia to sort of redouble its efforts at undermining other countries like I can almost figure out how to handle any other country. But what do you do about Russia? Right. No, this is a, a really good point. And it's, you know, particularly apropos today when you have the US or, or recently we have the US and Russia meeting about the geopolitical tensions. And I think if you ask anyone who is likely to be a loser in the energy transition, Russia is always at the top of that list. And I think that there's good reasons for that. And as you mentioned, um, the dominance of oil and gas in Russia's economy has only grown since Putin became president quite a while ago, but you know it's been pretty stark. And there really is very little indication that the Russian leadership, Putin and the oligarchs around him, have any aptitude for doing the really tough reforms that would be required to accommodate Russia to the new energy reality. So the, the power structure now has a lot to do with oil and gas, and that's likely to continue. So, you know, but I'd say there are two important caveats. 
The first is, as we just discussed, that in the long run, this looks pretty bad for Russia. And there's a lot of things that we might want to plan for in terms of contingencies. But in the short to medium term, it's not necessarily looking so bad because of the continued need for natural gas and because of Russia's ability to supply that gas at cheap prices. So that's, you know, it's a short to medium term point. The second is that Russia is not like some other countries that we might talk about. It does have areas where it could become quite important and influential in the energy transition and have it be lucrative and also have it be geopolitically influential. And the two that come to mind are first hydrogen, that Russia could really become a hydrogen power. It would require a lot of strategy and investment. Um, and the second is, is nuclear, where Russia already plays an outside role in global development. And clearly, if the energy transition is going to be successful, there's going to have to be greater use of nuclear power around the world. And so Russia could actually find that to be economically useful, but it can also be geopolitically useful. But I think just, you know, going about, you know, to answer your question directly, what do we do? I think the base case that I would plan for if I were still a policymaker would be to game out and to prepare for Russia really being a spoiler of the energy transition mm -hmm. going forward. And we saw that just when we were looking at um, the shale gas unconventional boom in the US and the interest in Europe and recreating it there, that Russia deployed a lot of tools to undermine the chances of you know the EU or countries in the EU developing their own shale gas. And I imagine that seeing this as existential, Russia would go to even greater lengths. Yeah, I'll just um, echo one or two points and then add one more. I agree with what uh, Megan said about nuclear power. And I wrote a column in Foreign Policy just a few days ago about why nuclear may finally be having its moment. Part of that is we need all zero carbon tools on deck. And even then, <laughs> I think it's going to be incredibly hard to get where we need to get to. Um, but also a foreign policy consideration, which is that if the US doesn't exert more leadership in nuclear power, China and Russia are building the world's nuclear power plants, and that is a national security risk. Her point that Russia stands to be a loser and therefore will perhaps try to stand in the way of the transition, I think that is borne out by history and how it's participated in international climate negotiations and, and COPs in the past. So we've seen that. The only thing I'll add is, is oil, which is... Um, Actually, Russia gets more revenue from the sale of oil than it does from the sale of natural gas. Huh. We wrote in the piece about why the potential for underinvestment, if that kind of underinvestment in supply gets ahead of demand, you could see more price volatility, more price spikes. We may need OPEC more before we need it less mm -hmm. to manage the kind of energy price spikes that are harmful economically and politically. And you know, one of the interesting developments of the last several years has been Russia's stepping into a leadership role where Saudi Arabia and Russia are now positioned as the head of the OPEC, so-called OPEC Plus Alliance, OPEC, OPEC and, a, and a bunch of new member countries. And that means if we want OPEC to help at certain points put more oil in the market, which is what the Biden administration has called for last year when energy prices went high, you're not only calling Riyadh, but what happens in Moscow matters too now. Yeah, that's... This answer is almost the scariest possible answer that Russia will be empowered in the short term and midterm and fearful of the long term. <laughs> that's a, yeah, that's a good way of putting it. And therefore try to slow the pace. That's a recipe for, for trouble. Well, that's a good segue to the sort of next broad topic. I mean, one of the things you guys write about is that the transition to clean energy is going to create new energy powers. I don't know if you'd say superpowers, but new sort of concentrations of power on several metrics. And one of them, I want to I go through them. But the first one you mentioned, I think, is one that people maybe not 
don't think about very often, which is the power to set standards for the clean energy economy. And that, you know, when you raised China and Russia being ahead on nuclear, it sort of raised that issue for me. So say a little bit about what this means and why standard setting is a form of power. This is an area where the Chinese have been very forward-looking and I would say very active on before the United States only recently came to appreciate the power that comes in setting the standards, which is somewhat ironic because the U.S. has set so many of the standards globally going forward. Maybe it just took it for granted that it could stay in that position. And setting the standards in the clean energy revolution are going to have to do with compatibility, having to do with safety, having to do with materials. You know, there are all kinds of examples we could use. But if we think about electricity and transmission grids and about connectivity, and it could go beyond simply that a country, when it's building its new energy infrastructure, and you think around the world, there are many places like the United States that are going to have to revamp their energy architecture. But there are many countries that are going to be building energy infrastructure for the first time. Mm -hmm. And in doing so, depending on, you know, what country is actually or what body is governing that infrastructure build out and who is most influential in the setting of those standards, you could see how one country may get competitive leg up. And this could be simply a commercial advantage, but it could end up having some political advantages as well if it puts a country you know, say China being potentially the most obvious in a position of denying that country certain inputs that it needs for its energy infrastructure. And it could go so far as to having cyber connectivity and allowing one country to um, harvest the data of another country. Because when we think about the clean energy transition, we obviously are thinking about societies that are even more electrified than the Mm -hmm. societies we live in today. Jason, anything to add on standards? Uh, I think she described it well. I mean, we highlight one place where it's particularly important uh, relates to nuclear energy. Part of the reason we would be concerned about Russia and China building the world's nuclear power plants or setting the norms for nuclear nonproliferation, setting the operational and safety standards. So that matters a lot. Uh, And then, you know, we we know that in a clean energy transition, we're going to have a much more digitalized economy, uh, a range of digital tools that help optimize the electric grid. We're going to need more demand response tools and there could be commercial advantages if certain firms develop the standards and others you know, have to play catch up. There's also, of course, uh, a host of cybersecurity implications there as we see a much more interconnected grid. One shudders to imagine China and Russia being in charge of cybersecurity standards. The second form of power in the clean energy economy, and this is one of great interest. I got a lot of questions about this on Twitter. I get a lot of questions about this just day to day anyway, is minerals and materials, the sort of supply chains. So right now, you know, countries who happen to be sitting on a lot of oil and natural gas get a lot of geopolitical power out of that. But when we transition to clean energy, we're going to need a few key minerals and materials, lithium, cobalt, copper, things like that. And currently, supply chains for those minerals are very highly concentrated. Like I think the in the Congo, that's like 80% of cobalt comes out of there. So let's talk about a what could countries do? Like uh, if the DRC having a kind of um, choke point in the minerals supply chain, what could DRC do with that power? Or China, you know, to take another bigger example, 
China dominates the supply chain for lots of minerals, but also dominates the sort of early processing of minerals. I think, again, it's like 80 plus percent of processing of all those minerals takes place in China. So just to start with, like, what's the danger? What's a possible, like, what do we worry those countries could do with that power? Yeah, well, um, we have seen, and it's not just clean energy, of course, those critical minerals are are essential in lots of technology and electronics applications. And we've seen this with semiconductors before. China's embargo on the export of critical minerals to Japan in 2010 tells us what could happen. So global trade in critical minerals is going to skyrocket in the Mm. net zero uh, IEA scenario of what net zero 2050 looks like. Global trade in critical minerals goes from about 10% of all energy-related trade to about 50%. So we're going to need a lot more of all those minerals you just talked about. And they're much more concentrated. So that's also important to keep in mind. As much as we worry about the role of Saudi Arabia or Russia in the oil market, the top three oil producers, the US, Saudi Arabia, and Russia, each produce about 10% of the world's supply. Mm -hmm. When it comes to uh, lithium and cobalt and rare earths, the top producer in each of those produces more than 50% of the world's supply. And, And as you said, even the refining and processing is even more concentrated, namely in China. So in that sense, you worry about what that kind of dominance of a necessary input to clean energy technologies could do if there was a conflict or China's, uh, we're worried about what China might do in Taiwan in the years to come. If there was a conflict of that sort, if they were to cut off that supply, what implications it would have for the global supply chain. Uh, It's a real worry. Uh, I think we acknowledge it and then we sort of note it is different from oil, however, in a few important respects. And one is that these critical minerals are not the daily flow of fuel without which kind of the heat in your house turns off and you freeze in the cold or your car doesn't work. It's an input to a finished good. So if we didn't have a supply of lithium, it would cause the market for new electric car sales to slow. It would be bottlenecks in the supply chain and everything else. It wouldn't affect your ability to get around today. It's not the electricity your EV needs. It's something that building the next EV needs. So that you don't derive the same geopolitical influence uh, from that. And we are also over time, uh, whereas oil is sort of to be found in in certain places geologically, there are a lot of these critical minerals around the world. It does take time. It's not easy. It's a 10 or 15 year process to develop new mines. But over time, you can diversify these supply chains, build refining capacity elsewhere. The technology to do recycling is getting much better. And also my engineering school colleagues at Columbia and elsewhere are pretty optimistic that the technology is going to improve where you can use much more plentiful minerals to develop batteries. And, and so maybe our dependence on these things will decline over time as well. But if we get on track for net zero or anything close to it, the amount of clean energy that we have to deploy is so massive that we're going to need a lot more of these minerals to co- and materials to come. Yeah. And in terms of, of adding to that, I would say that what we've written about in the answer that Jason just provided should bring down people's blood pressure about this in the medium to long run. I do think I would underscore in the short to medium term, China does have a pretty significant advantage in terms of its dominance of supply chains of these minerals as as your lead up to the question Dave suggested. So, you know, I, I do think that is something that is rightly getting the attention of policymakers. And it's going to be, you know, it's going to be a tougher challenge before it becomes an easier challenge. The one thing that I sometimes hear that I think we can probably discount a bit is this idea that maybe there's going to be an OPEC, there's going to be a cartel of mm-hmm. these countries that have these kinds of resources. And, you know, there may be market conditions which could allow for that. But, you know, a cartel is also underpinned often by common political objectives. And so if you think about just lithium, 
you know, what do Bolivia and Australia have in common, <laughs> you know, in terms of what are they going to kind of bound together and hold the global economy hostage? It's, you know, it's, it's hard to imagine exactly. And secondly, you know, I think it's interesting to think about countries like the Democratic Republic of the Congo, as you say, that produces over 70% of the cobalt in the world today. You know, the Congo, I don't imagine is going to challenge the United States directly. But, you know, it probably will be able to use that reality to shine a light on some of its needs and problems to, you know, up its priority in terms of where resources from the rest of the world go when they go to Africa, you know, the attention given to the conflict there. Those things, I think, are likely to happen. So they are going to influence foreign policy, but maybe not in the hostage taking kind of way that our instinctive reflection back to 1973 makes us think about. Well, another another worry that people have, which strikes me as perfectly well-founded, you know, when you think about the history of oil and gas, the history of colonialism is <laughs> highly related. And, you know, we've seen poorer countries who discover oil or gas basically become resource colonies yeah. for the West, where we just pull the resources out, they get terrible governance and poverty, and we get the resources you know, if you look at something like the Democratic Republic of Congo with 70% of the cobalt and you're making predictions, that seems like a pretty good prediction that, that we're just going to create a new set of resource colonies. Are there ways in advance to head that off? You know, I think that is a very legitimate concern. I don't have the numbers on the tip of my tongue, but I seem to recall, and maybe Jason does, I seem to recall that from what we can discern, the terms of the contracts of the Chinese investment in the Democratic of the Republic for the cobalt there are really, really unfavorable to the people living in the DRC. So I think there's some concern for that, that that's legitimate. There's another thing that I think is warrants even more concern, and it's directly related, and that is this whole idea of the resource curse. And some of the mm-hmm. resource curse material has to do with you know foreign powers coming in and, and taking advantage of countries that are less well-positioned to negotiate on behalf of themselves. But it really turned out that over time, the resource curse experience and literature focused a lot more on the fact that just the huge influx of foreign currency that comes suddenly to a country Mm -hmm. um, and their inability to actually be able to absorb it. And the fact that you know, just because of the nature of foreign exchange into many of these economies, which don't have very developed industrial sectors, you know, it, it creates all kinds of havoc on the economy. And a lot of it is exacerbated when the country um, has a large population working in agriculture, or, you know, there's a history of conflict, all of these things that many of these countries actually do have. So I think that it's very possible in this phenomenon is called the Dutch disease. It's very possible that a lot of these countries will be unable to handle that. And to answer your question about what might we be able to do about that, I would say in the last 20 or 30 years, there's a lot more awareness of, you know, the fact that it doesn't have to be a resource curse, that there are a whole series of policies that a government can adopt to mitigate these negative effects. The problem is that it comes back to governance. And Mm -hmm. a lot of these countries don't have sufficiently well-developed institutions that you have governments that are willing to actually create constraints on their own behavior. And that's what is actually needed in order to ensure that these kinds of economic dislocations don't happen. In a sense, the influx of a bunch of money also reduces domestic pressure to diversify, to build a a more diversified and stable economic base. 
Yeah, and it's the risk a lot of petro states face now trying to think about what a uh, world where th- th- they can rely less on petrodollars will look like, and they're trying to diversify their economies. And as we're seeing, that's hard to do. So the resource curse issues, the human rights issues, you can hopefully develop kind of global standards. Maybe the best example of this is the Kimberley process for diamonds. But if you have standards and some oversight, but that's hard to do, you know, we, we can try to avoid some of those issues. And the other piece of the critical minerals is not just the, the human rights and colonialism concerns, but also the environment impacts. And mm-hmm. this is mining, right? And, it, and yeah. it does have environmental impacts. And we have to do it at such a larger scale. Right. Uh, when you look at how much lithium we need or something like that, um, it is hard to do that level of extraction without uh, environmental impacts. Right. Even in countries with effective governance, that's difficult. Yes. <laughs> right. That's right. Another source of possible power or concentration of power is the manufacturing of the sort of bits and pieces of the clean energy economy, the components You say in the piece, this is a sort of less firm sort of power since manufacturing can and often does spread out and lots of countries are pursuing their own domestic manufacturing right now. But it made me sort of wonder whether we know any historical precedent about this. Is it going to be a natural process for the manufacturing of these clean energy components to spread out and become a diverse global market? Or do you think there will in the end be some sort of manufacturing superpowers that have some, um, you know, geopolitical power as a result of their, as having a kind of lock on manufacturing? I think there are a couple of really interesting and important aspects to this. I think if we thought of a world where it was just about competitive edge and what was going to advance the energy transition the most quickly, that you probably would have countries that would emerge. I don't know if we'd call them manufacturing superpowers, but I think a good and the best example is just the solar panels and mm-hmm. you know China's dominance of that market. Now, if we didn't care about politics and we didn't even care about economics, we just cared about the energy transition, that wouldn't necessarily seem to be such a problem as many of us think it is. And so I think there are going to be, and we're already starting to see them, political efforts to try to ensure that countries are not reliant on one producer or one manufacturer of particularly critical inputs or elements of the clean energy technologies. And I'll give you a really pertinent example, and that is of India. So just starting this year, India is putting really, really high tariffs on anything solar that comes from China. And the purpose of this is twofold. Is one, because India is incredibly sensitive about its geopolitical relationship with China, particularly Mm -hmm. after the hot war that threatened to erupt on their border in the last year or so. But secondly, India also wants to build a manufacturing base. It wants the jobs that it perceives that will go along with it. And so what we'll have is maybe more manufacturers, but it'll be less efficient and more expensive and will likely you know, take the energy transition to be slower than it would otherwise. So again, it's kind of balancing these two things. Yeah. I'm going to come back to that later, actually. But the one other source of power that you mentioned, which I thought was intriguing, is you know everyone anticipates a huge explosion in the markets for zero carbon fuels derived from hydrogen. And you say there's, you could see the emergence of electrostates that sort of dominate the production of hydrogen fuels. You know, what you want to see, I think what everybody wants to see is a, is a transition to green hydrogen, which is hydrogen derived from renewable energy. 
And so you might look to states with copious renewable energy to get into that. But the easier and cheaper route into hydrogen is through so-called blue hydrogen, which is made from natural gas with the emissions allegedly captured and buried. That's the um, term for blue hydrogen. I guess what my worry is, is countries with copious natural gas getting into the blue hydrogen game, making plentiful, cheap blue hydrogen, and then having both economic and political incentive to delay the transition to green hydrogen. So I just wonder how you see all that playing out. I I find this particular dynamic really interesting because you do have to sort of like bend your mind a little bit to think not about the world today, but the world in the future. And of course, hydrogen is uh, a topic du jour and and, uh, you couldn't walk five feet at the COP in Glasgow without tripping over a hydrogen display or a new hydrogen company. Uh, Because we know that we got to electrify a lot of things, but some things are going to be hard to electrify and steel and shipping, maybe maybe some other things like heavy duty trucks. We'll see if batteries win there. But again, I'll just refer to the IEA net zero uh, scenario which finds global energy related trade that is hydrogen and ammonia going from almost zero today to about a third so just we need a lot more we need fuel molecules as opposed to electrons but then we need those fuels to be zero carbon and that's where you talk about hydrogen and ammonia both bl- blue and green a big part of what we were trying to do in this piece was deconstruct sort of how an end state of net zero might look versus Mm. the pathway to get there and how it could be Mm. different and how it could be rocky. And I think in zero carbon fuels, it comes into play in at least two ways. One is you're talking about the emergence and development of a fairly nascent market. And so in the early days, you're going to have the analogy we tr- we gave, and it's not imperfect, but it's it has bear some resemblance. The early days of the liquefied natural gas market in the 1960s and 70s, when it was just kind of getting off the ground, you had a few dominant producers, a few dominant buyers, and there was a lot more leverage than you have in a much more integrated and flexible market where there's a lot of suppliers, a lot of buyers. If mm-hmm. someone threatens to cut off your supply, you go buy it somewhere else. Um, in the early days, we might see Japan has said it's going to be a big buyer of green ammonia. Well, what if Saudi Arabia or Chile or just one or two countries are the ones that supply that? If your entire steel sector depends on shipments from that country, that's a lot of you know leverage and we could see some geopolitical risk there. The second is the one you raise, which is the focus on blue hydrogen today. And of course, if we're going to do that, which is natural gas combined with carbon capture, you got to make sure the oversight is really strict. The capture mm-hmm. rates are very high. The methane leaks are very low. And, and I think you have some states like Qatar and others that we could see focus on gas as a way to create hydrogen and then either move that fuel around as the fuel like ammonia, or maybe just build the production facilities to turn the gas into hydrogen and ammonia, in which case you still might have a lot of global trade in gas. You're just doing different things with it. You're turning it into a fuel as opposed to putting it in your power sector. I do think over time, green hydrogen is going to end up uh, winning just because the costs will come down dramatically. So mm. you're right that states may try to stand in the way. But the scale of, I mean, to make green hydrogen work, you need a lot of improvements in electrolyzer costs, improvements mm-hmm. in efficiency, and then you need really, really cheap renewable energy, and you need a lot of it. You need a lot yeah. of electricity. And so there are you know, only certain places in the world where you kind of have that much very, very cheap renewable electricity. Uh, and those could become some of the dominant states producing a lot of the green fuels, the low-carbon fuels in the years to come. And those could be not your usual suspects, right? Like Chile or, or countries in Africa. They have a lot of sunlight down there. They do. Yeah. They do. And yeah. You answered it perfectly from my perspective, but I, I would just affirm, yeah, th- that 
we would be looking at different countries really emerging as potentially big actors on this on this side. And Chile is certainly one of them. So you need the things that Jason mentioned in terms of having a lot of cheap renewable energy, but you also mm. need water. And so mm. um, this is one of the reasons why, you know, not every place on the earth has those two things in great abundance. Right. I think you're raising an interesting point. I just want to come back to it, which is we, we talked about the resource curse. And at the same time, if you talk, and we do talk in the piece about tensions between developed and developing economies, which are on full display at the COP in Glasgow, I think that will be next year at the one in Egypt that when you talk to African leaders uh, who are really worried about the impacts of climate, about not getting the support from developed economies they need to transition, but also would some would like to develop their own hydrocarbon resources and monetize them and get revenue from them. So mm. what are the what are the sources of revenue that could come from zero carbon rather than oil and gas? And so you're identifying one, obviously, lots of good renewable energy resources, either to produce their own energy, which hopefully will grow as they become wealthier, but it's hard to export electricity as electrons. Maybe you can mm -hmm. export it as fuels. The other thing that's interesting is, you know, we just saw this um, Climeworks project in Iceland, the, the carbon removal project. Mm -hmm. And why Iceland? They have cheap zero carbon energy and geothermal, and they have good geologic storage capability. A lot of African countries have that too. And there's this mm -hmm. kind of, I was wondering at some point whether you could imagine a source of revenue for the some of the developing economies in the world where they are basically building the manufacturing, so to speak, capability to pull CO2 out of the air. And the largest emitters who are responsible for this problem historically are actually sending revenue to those countries, a wealth transfer from rich to poor countries, mm -hmm. in part to remove the CO2. You know, most of this, uh, most of the piece, and I think when most people think about the future of this, they imagine the increasing globalization of these resources and this kind of trade. But I thought it was interesting. There's also, a, uh, I have a whole section of the piece about trends and forces working against further globalization in the clean energy space. Um, one of them is just, as you just mentioned, electricity. So the sort of energy game is going to turn to electricity mostly. Like electrification is going to be the primary tool against climate change. And so every country is going to be trying to electrify and thereby using more electricity and therefore electricity is going to be a bigger part of its energy picture. And as you note, electricity is not to a first approximation, not really a globally traded commodity. Very little electricity crosses country lines you know, I've been thinking about that a lot as more and more of your energy life and processes are inside your country. If that just reduces the prominence of geopolitics or like how, how, how do you see that playing out? And th there's some other trends working against globalization, too, if you want to mention them. Sure. Um, as you noted, we talked about that we can imagine the 2050 world, the fully decarbonized world being one where there is a lot of forces favoring globalization because of the need and for robust trade and energy technologies and clean energy inputs and those types of things. But that in the interim, you know, and to some extent looking even beyond that, that there really is, uh, you know, several factors that are going to pull away from deglobalization and electrification, as you mentioned, is one of the greatest ones. And I think we have a, a statistic in the piece or two statistics that really underscore the point you made that in 2018, less than 3% of global electricity was traded across borders. And that's compared to two thirds of oil mm. um, supplies in 2014. So there's this huge discrepancy. And the reasons are simply that it's, it's just very hard to transport electricity 
electricity, it's hard to store it, it's hard to ship it. So, And it's a much, just to say, it's a much greater security risk too, right? Yeah, you can store oil exactly. in, in salt caverns, you can buy oil from a different supplier if you depended on your neighboring country to send you electricity to keep the lights on. That country has a lot of, a lot of power over you. Right. But to go to the question about, you know, to what extent is this going to change things? I think there is going to be an element that's going to be more inward looking. So if a country is providing more of its own energy sources from within its own borders, it won't have to be accounting for those shipments of oil and gas that are coming from afar. However, it does actually create some other new concerns, and those have a lot to do with cyber and the manipulation of electricity, electricity grids. And some of these electricity grids will be all contained within countries, but others will cross borders, not in a global sense, but in a sense of that it may foster more regionalization. So if you think about the Northeast of the United States, we get a lot of our electricity from Canada from hydro sources there. And if you can imagine, you know, small countries, think about, you know, countries, some of them in Latin America, that it might make sense for them if they're going to build electricity grids that are reliant on renewable energy, it it probably makes sense that these grids would be large enough to serve more than one country. And so suddenly the politics of your neighbors and your relationship with your neighbors are going to be potentially even more important than they were in a world where, you know, you were getting your energy sources from halfway around the world. So I think there will be a lot of effects um, to that extent. The other factors that we mentioned, and Jason might want to say more about them, just have to do with the protectionism that we've started to see go hand in hand with uh, some clean energy technologies. And I mentioned, you know, I gave the Indian example, but I think there are other possibilities like that. So I mean, it's worth noting lots of that in the Build Back Better Act, right? I mean, mm-hmm. lots of that the Biden administration is actively pursuing. Yeah, exactly. One other striking statistic to the original question you framed is, you know, we were talking about some of the ways global energy related trade shifts in the IEA net zero scenario to away from oil and gas to critical minerals or or hydrogen. But the other finding is that total energy related trade in a net zero world is only 38%, so a little more than a third of what it would be if the world were to stay in its current trajectory. That's what I was trying to get at. That's very very striking. It is striking. And and it's kind of not surprising, but it is striking that you have just much more localized energy and and, right. and the geopolit the geopolitics of energy will wane in the long term for some reasons there'll be new risks created too but part of that is just electricity is inherently more local mm-hmm. and um, less globally traded across borders and that's just going to reduce the importance of energy as a factor in geopolitics yeah fascinating and then and then that's when the peace breaks out so let's talk about China. <laughs> China, so vexing. I mean, on the surface, one of the sort of conclusions of your piece is that some countries are well positioned to benefit from the clean energy transition and others are not. And two of the countries that are positioned to be winners is the US and China. And so on its face, you might think, well, the US and China then have enormous incentive being the two biggest economies in the world and the two potential winners here to cooperate at accelerating this transition, since there's a pot of gold at the end of the rainbow for both of them, yet an outbreak of cooperation is not what we seem to be witnessing. So what is China's sort of, you know, it's such a black box, I think, to a lot of Americans, including me, sort of like, what what do you see as their posture on this? Why aren't they going faster? Why aren't they cooperating more? Why isn't it in their interest just to go gangbusters after this? Well, I I do think that China does take climate change 
seriously. I do think there is some evidence that so there's not a lot of climate deniers in the Chinese government. At the same time, when climate ambition, even environmental concerns generally, and of course, it's not just climate, it's local air pollution throughout China, which in some major cities has been getting better, partly because of less coal, partly because they've shifted coal to other parts of the country where there are fewer people, which doesn't help the climate. But when that comes into tension with economic growth, economic growth you know, usually wins. And so there is this dynamic playing out within China about how quickly they're going to move and what technologies they're going to use. And of course, they use half the words coal. So there's no no solution uh, without China to dealing with climate. It was encouraging to see that their announcement about not financing coal plants overseas, and hopefully that, that will prove to be true. I think one of the reasons for what you described, which is the difficulty in US-China cooperation on climate, even though there are many reasons, this is the ultimate tragedy of the commons problem. It doesn't make a mat it doesn't matter where a ton mm-hmm. of CO2 comes from. It it's not gonna if one country <laughs> does this, it's not gonna matter if we don't work together, is whether you can segment the issue of climate from the rest of the US-China relationship, which mm-hmm. is incredibly contentious and at its yeah. lowest point in many decades. And that was the hope, and that was what John Kerry, as climate envoy, said <laughs> the goal would be. It's unclear whether China wants to actually segment climate and, and whether it says, well, if we're going to act on climate, we have these other concerns with Taiwan or human rights or intellectual property or anything else. So I was, it was encouraging to see at the 11th hour an agreement at the COP in Glasgow that the US and China would commit to work together. But the last year, you know, it would have been better if they'd actually been working together for the last year and had something mm-hmm. to show for it. And hopefully that that will change moving forward. The other factor in this, and Megan can expand on this too, is if it is the case that some countries are not moving as quickly as one might hope, and by the way, that may, the U.S. may be in that category. We'll see what happens yeah. in Washington in the, in the coming weeks and months. But we're um, going to get to that. You know, increasingly, you are going to see certain countries or, or groups of countries like the European Union that are acting on climate uh, more than others either encourage or try to compel other countries to do the same. And so the starting point for that, of course, is like the European Union saying it's going to put carbon border adjustments in place. Mm -hmm. But it's easy to imagine those extending beyond a tool to level the playing field on imports of carbon intensive products to your country and actually turning into coercive measures, not not that dissimilar from sanctions. If Mm -hmm. you sort of roll the clock forward and say, where, where could this go? Uh, those could be applied against China or, or, or against, uh, if we don't get our act together, maybe against the US one day. <laughs> right. and let me just uh, jump in there on the points about the bilateral rela- relationship and how I do think that the Biden administration came to this issue and with the appointment of John Kerry really thinking that it's so important, we're going to be able to deal with it separately. And the Chinese really have seemed to resist that pretty firmly, that you're not going to be able to be really aggressive on issues like Taiwan, the South China Seas, the Uyghurs, and then expect kumbaya relationship on climate. And I think that's been a disappointment to, to lots of us in the sense we hope that climate would be this island of cooperation in the otherwise contentious relationship. And also because I think many of us really struggle to imagine how the world was going to be successfully transitioning to a zero, zero carbon economy if there wasn't cooperation between the US and China. And so I think, you know- Can that- I inter- interject a question real quick? Sure. That posture of China's, do you interpret that as rational in the sense that uh, it's a rational way for them to sort of balance climate against their other interests? Or do you think that- the rational course for China would be to cooperate on climate where there's where there's cooperation available and segment these other issues. In other words, are they just are they angry and that anger is extending to climate or are they, do you think, being rational on a on a bigger scale? That's a big question. I'm sorry. 
I think sort of twofold. The first is that, you know, China is basically looking at this relationship and thinking, where does China have leverage in this relationship? Right. And one of the areas is in climate. You know, the U.S. is really, really keen for China to decarbonize because and even more so in a Biden administration, because we all know if China doesn't do it, it doesn't really matter who else does it. So it would seem to really defy you know, kind of a more realist strategic thinking to say, we're going to give up, you know, we're, we're going to separate this area where right, we know we right. have a lot of leverage from all these other issues, which we see as more existential. You know, they see mm. Taiwan and other things as more existential to the survival of the Communist Party. You know, climate is important, but not the same as Taiwan. So I think that is probably what has been going on. You know, I'm sure there are people within the Chinese government who are arguing that they need this cooperation as a strategic leveling point in the relationship, mm-hmm. you know, that this is actually, and this has always been one of the reasons why I thought the cooperation is important, even apart from what it means for the climate, is just simply if there's one area where two rivals can work together, this is helpful, you know, for all kinds of reasons for the rest of their relationship. Right. But so going back to this, the, the question of, you know, now, I think we're all faced with the reality that we need to envision a successful global transition and not assume that U.S.-China cooperation is going to underpin it. Mm. Now, that doesn't mean there can't be some areas of cooperation. I think that the efforts that produced what was produced in Glasgow, you know, those are all worth it. But the reality is this is going to be an area of really intense competition, like many other areas of competition between the U.S. and China. And so trying to figure out how that competition can actually you know, we can compete our way to success rather than complete our way to stalemate, I think is is really the challenge going forward. And that competition is going to be in technology and talent and inputs and markets and standards. You know, it's going to be across the board. And maybe, you know, maybe it can be a force for a quicker transition. And I certainly hope so. Well, we're getting toward time. And I, there's one elephant in the room I, w- <laughs> I want to address that is extraordinarily unpleasant to think about, but probably necessary to think about, which is, you know, a lot of these dynamics you're talking about, you know, are sort of framing the long-term promise of a clean energy-based global energy economy versus the sort of short to midterm bumps and difficulties and frictions getting there. And I have been thinking a lot about what it's going to look like if Trump and the Republicans take power again in 2024. I think we know enough now to have a pretty good sense of what their global posture is going to be. Trump loves Russia, loves autocrats, loves fossil fuels, and views, you know, has a view of the energy transition, which basically says those of us who still have oil and gas should just exploit the hell out of it, you know, make the most of it in the transition. So long and short, it just seems to me like solving the climate problem and in terms of the clean energy transition, Trump and Republicans taking power would result in the U.S. basically being a rogue nation, an impediment on almost every front. And I just wonder if either of you have had the stomach to (laughs) sit and think about that for a while and think through what that might look like and how to avoid the worst of it. Well, I'm sure we've all thought about what the consequences of that would be. And in some sense, the overall future of the Republic (laughs) and our democratic (laughs) institutions 
is perhaps even more concerning to me than what it would mean for climate change. But you're right. I, th- I think that would um, it would certainly be a massive setback for the United States on the global stage and put us in the category of countries that would be the target of these sorts of coercive measures. Others would, I think, reap some many of the economic benefits of leading in clean energy technology, nevertheless trying to do the right thing by the standpoint of climate change. I'm I don't want to sound Pollyannish or, or naive. I'm, I'm hopeful that increasingly you do see more on the Republican side of the aisle and, and people, if not, certainly not an adequate sense of what the scale of the solution needs to be, but a recognition that, uh, and I wouldn't put Trump in this category, but but others who say, who recognize this is a real problem or recognize that climate change is real and are trying to talk about what the solutions might be. And maybe those solutions certainly are not at the scale of what they should be, but hopefully, I guess I'll put it this way. Even in that scenario you talk about, the impacts of climate are going to continue to play out in years mm-hmm. to come. And I work with students every day on a campus. So does so does Megan. I know how passionate they are about these issues. I know how much higher it is on their priority list in terms of what they care about when they go to the ballot box relative to others. Even if elected leaders for periods of time don't demonstrate that, we have this huge gap now between ambition and reality when it comes to climate change. The ambition is getting stronger, not weaker, two degrees, well below two, 1.5, driven mm-hmm. by the science. But the reality is not changing. Emissions are going up each and every year, pandemic aside. And so that, that gap between ambition and reality has to reach a breaking point. One of the two has to give. Either we're going to wake up one day and say, this was just too hard. We thought we could do it, but I guess we'll just be fine with uh, three degrees or whatever it happens to be. Mm -hmm. I find that hard to believe given what we are seeing each and every day and what Mm. we know we're going to see in the years to come. And, And again, that sense of urgency that particularly the younger generation has. And then the reality has to change. And the longer you wait to get started, the more disruptive uh, that has to be. And that's why we tried to talk about what some of the economic and geopolitical implications of that disruption could be, because we have to manage them or you're really going to lose support for trying to move as quickly as we need to. Is there a power out there that could realistically step in if the U.S. basically gives up its leadership role entirely? Like, Does the EU have the geopolitical clout to be the center of leadership on the transition in the way that you would hope the U.S. would be? Well, I think the EU has been you know, leading in many respects, and it's a pretty sizable amount of global emissions. Uh, so if it works collectively, it can do that. I think other countries like perhaps China or others might might step in as well. I do want to say that you know, even in the scenario you describe, which is in many respects a worst case scenario from my standpoint, at least for US mm-hmm. politics and, and climate ambition, even if that does not happen, we're still pretty far behind the ball. Yeah. And so you know, if we pass Build Back Better in DC, which is uncertain right now, uh, <laughs> that will help a lot. It certainly doesn't get us all the way to you know being on a pathway to meet our NDCs. And we saw just in the last couple of days uh, the Rhodium Group analysis and some others emissions and how much they went up last year. So even if our you know not not a Trump twenty twenty four scenario, but uh, Republican more in a traditional model or a Democrat were to win we're still not doing what we need to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's gonna, that has to be addressed too. That's going to catch up to us as well. Final question then. You know, this is extraordinarily difficult to answer. It's difficult to predict the future. But putting aside a rocky path in the short term ahead, in the, in the long term, the clean energy transition, if you were just viewing it from a purely foreign policy realist perspective, that is to say you didn't care at all about the global welfare, you're just the interests of the U.S. are your top concern. 
Do you think the U.S. is going to benefit from this, is going to be better positioned in a clean energy run world than it is? Because it's pretty well positioned in a fossil fuel world, right? It's a giant producer. It's got a giant military. Like it's, it's got long-term relationships in the Middle East. Like it's pretty well positioned in our fossil reality. If you're just trying to talk to a foreign policy realist, do you think the U.S. will be better or worse off in the world in a clean energy future? As you said, it's a very hard question to answer because it depends how many things we're we're going to, you know, set aside. You know, but my impulse is that the US is better in a clean energy future. And I'm assuming, but you can tell me otherwise, that you know, the counterfactual to your counterfactual, whatever we're going to call it, would be a world where there is extreme climate change. And right. that in itself, as we already know, is going to produce all kinds of national security ramifications. I mean, one estimate, which is actually a couple of years old, so I imagine the estimate has only gotten larger by the World Bank, is that in 2050, there'll be 143 climate refugees. And that you know, is compared to the world today, where there's something like 25 million refugees. So, you know, we're talking about this exponential um, increase in just that one area, which is obviously consequential, but that would have huge implications for the U.S., its security, its borders, its well-being, for its global relationships, all of those things. So, you know, I, I definitely think that a world where America has been a leader in climate change, has been out front on climate change, is good in terms of peace and security, if we're talking about, you know, imagining that 2050 or beyond world. Um, but I also think it, domestically that it can be good for the United States. And, you know, there is a piece which we started with, which is maybe some people find an inconvenient truth. But in a clean energy future, there's still some role for oil and gas. And so I think, you know, positioning it in a way that this isn't necessarily a fossil fuel world versus a clean energy world, that it's a world against carbon emissions. And when we frame it like that, you know, there's a lot more scope for people to be contributors to a solution rather than detractors. So, um, you know, I think there are lots of good reasons why this is in the interest of the United States. Yeah. Yeah. I can definitely see why it's in our absolute interest, right? Like obviously, you know, solving climate change alone is enough. I guess my question was more about our relative position relative to other countries, our sort of power relative to the rest of the world. Yeah, I guess, I mean, Megan made the most important point, which is it's hard to disconnect your question from a world that suffers the worst impacts right. of climate change. And would there be people who lose more than the US and the global South? Yes, but it's going to be pretty painful for everyone, including including the US. So I think, you know, our, our piece, and to the extent there's been discussion of national security and climate, it is to date often been about the national security impacts of not doing something about climate change, of, of, mm. of, of, of suffering the impacts of climate change. So, and, and then the view is if we if we get our act together and, and have a successful clean energy transition, geopolitics of energy will be a thing of the past. That That's what we were trying to address. Actually, it could be rockier than you think, but certainly the consequences of inaction would be much worse. And, and I, I would say that the US, you're right, it is one of the largest oil and gas producers in the world. It derives a lot of economic benefits from that in and, and states like Texas and others. But it, it has really good resources to lead in a clean energy economy too. There's no reason the Gulf Coast can't be a leader in uh, global supply of hydrogen and ammonia. 
We have some of the best capabilities for innovation and new technologies here in the U.S. There are going to be lots more companies at the scale of Tesla and much bigger. We talked about nuclear uh, as one ex- another technology. I think the U.S. is well positioned in many. Uh, there, again, in our piece, we talk about the fact that part of dominance in clean energy is just not going to come from the geologic trove you happen to have in the ground like oil and gas, but what you can manufacture cheaply like mm-hmm. a solar panel. There are countries that can manufacture things more cheaply than the U.S., But nonetheless, I think the U.S. has a lot of assets, a lot of attributes with good renewable energy resources, good manufacturing resources, good ports, good geologic storage capability for CO2 capture that could position it to lead in a clean energy economy, too. Yeah. And it might also be nice for the U.S. to uh, kind of resume a pro-social leadership role in in the world. That might also redound to our benefit in terms of gratitude and better relationships. You know, I wrote a piece on that in foreign policy, I don't know, a year or so ago about sort of the case for green industrial policy. And and part of that was some of the economic benefits you could derive at home by leading early in these technologies, like bringing down the cost of green steel or the things that have a very high green premium today. But it is also a form of climate leadership because, you know, it's it's just not uh, reasonable to expect some of the poorer parts of the world that are growing their emissions at the fastest rate, like Southeast Asia, eventually Latin America, Africa, to pay three times as much for the concrete and steel they need to build cities. If we can build those industries here and we can help drive the cost down because we're investing early in them, that also makes that technology more affordable to others. I mean, I I do want to say, though, that, again, we shouldn't be Pollyannish about this. We should recognize that there are losers to the transition, not just nation states, but workers and states and certain industries. And we do need a just transition. That that phrase means a lot of things, but it included in that is that we do need to think about... um, There's a lot of people who work in the oil and gas sector in the U.S., not to mention countries that are dependent on these revenues, making sure that there are public policies in place to help those communities transition uh, and and capture some of the benefits of the kind of economy we could grow in the future. That's really important. We don't take that seriously enough sometimes. All right. Well, thank you two so much for taking all this time. Uh, I really appreciate it. I have a feeling this topic will only get more and more prominent and of interest in coming years. So uh, maybe we'll talk again in a few years and see how things are shaping up. Excellent. Well, thank you very much, Dave. It's great to be on your show. Yeah, I love listening to it. So it's great to, to be on. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Volts podcast. It is ad-free, powered entirely by listeners like you. If you value conversations like this, please consider becoming a paid Volts subscriber at volts.wtf. Yes, that's volts.wtf, so that I can continue doing this work. Thank you so much, and I'll see you next time.